0: Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you don't see behind me. There we go, now you can see more of the library. And anyways, I'm reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about it. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. This week's book of the week, Joined My Library, is a random Barnes and Noble find. Um, I'm literally wandering through one day because that's what I do. Wandering through Barnes and Noble one day and I find this little gem. Terror to the Wicked, America's First Trial by Jury that Ended a War and Helped Form a Nation by Toby Pearl. And I thought, well, that looks interesting. What the hell is that all about? And I kind of read through the flap. Well, okay, let's get that one. And then the cocktail I found to mix up with this is called Justice Served, which is one ounce of Fernet, one orange wedge, and ginger beer. Pretty straightforward. So let's do this. tiny little bottles. I love them. They save me a ton of money, except apparently I can't open them. So this book is about a 400-year-old murder mystery. Well, not even a mystery. It's a 400-year-old murder. They know who did it. They caught the guy. What is Frené? What the fuck is that? It almost tastes like Listerine. Anyways. It's a 400-year-old murder. That's the short, short version of what this book is about. But Toby Pearl does an excellent job kind of reconstructing what life was like in colonial America and kind of bringing to life just how fraught this situation was. Because um, it's not just a murder. That's that's the easy answer. Oops, hold on. Getting ahead of myself. Not just the murder. That'll be interesting. I just realized this. It tastes slightly like Listerine. And I just put orange in it. So that's um. We're gonna see how this goes. So when the colonists came over, the colonialists, excuse me, came over under royal charter from Great Britain, contrary to some revisionist historians, the servants who traveled with them were not, by and large, black slaves. Most of those that traveled as servants were Irish and English indentures. So terms of indenture, indenture just means basically you are selling the rights to your life for x period of years, whatever the term of the indenture is. Anywhere from five to seven was typical. And during that time you were, for all intents and purposes, the property of the person who owned your contract. It's it's that simple. all right. And at the end of the five years or seven years or whatever your term of indenture was, pouring too fast, I forgot there was carbonation in the ginger beer. Five years was the most typical term of indenture, okay? And the servant was basically free to go on about their life at the end of the five years. So, when the indenture system was first implemented, the payoff was worth it, all right? Because yes, it sucked for five years, you had to do the bidding of your contract holder, and that's I mean, that's never fun, right? I mean, anybody who's ever worked in retail is aware how much of that sucks. But when it was all over, the servant could expect 100 acres. That's pretty solid. Hundred acres can get you started in life, right? This is a slightly stirred cocktail, just enough to mix it up. It says. Sorry, I've never, ever, ever. I may not be garnishing this. I'm supposed to. Oh no. Well, I'm cleaning my office today, anyways. It's supposed to be just the orange rind I am not that skilled. Hundred acres is solid. That can get you set up for life. That can get you that dream, right? That freedom to to live your life on your terms. And that was the contract for indenture as late as 1634. now by the time our antagonist arthur peach signed his contract the payoff had shrunk to five acres big difference five acres is barely enough for subsistence farming back then um i know that people talk a lot about small acre farming quarter quarter acre farming here in the 21st century that's when you can supplement what you need to grow with what's at the local grocery store back then five acres was barely enough to to, to support yourself So, by the time Peach's indenture would have ended in 1641, he basically would have been eligible for two suits, one for working, one for church. Not really worth it. Uh, Additionally, in a colony where they disliked single men, but men were outnumbered by five to one, he had a strikeout from there. So, he's an indentured servant, basically a slave. Um, He's a single man because they didn't let you fraternize. I mean, I I suppose technically there probably were indentures where they would have whole families come over, you know, wives, children, husbands. Peach was not one of those. So he was a single guy. He's outnumbered. He's possibly Catholic. And the reason I say that is because he was Irish and the Irish did not embrace Protestantism the way that the English did. So, uh, I, I mean, single he could remedy. Okay, even with the dearth of women in the colonies, he had caught the eye of a fellow indenture, Dorothy Temple, who was actually pregnant with Peach's child at the time these events took place. So there's a force strike. He's fraternizing among the indentures, which was prohibited. And he's Irish, which the English hate the Irish. They've, they still hate the Irish, all right? Fun story. I used to work at Fitzgerald's Casino Hotel, which is an Irish-themed casino right and for a while we had one of our bell people was very very British very British like from like from London British right and we had these backpackers come through once this is a total tangent we had these backpackers come through once who were from Ireland actual Irish people and he refused to help them And so I eventually get them a bellman to get their bags up through them. I'm like, Simon, what the hell? Why aren't you helping them? They're customers. Well, they're Irish. They're barely even human, he says in his very upper crust British accent. And I was like, Simon, what the fuck, dude? So 400 years later, they're still barely even human to the English. And uh, throw in the possibility of Catholic, which the Protestants hated the Catholics even more than they hated Quakers. And there was a lot there that the colonists probably didn't like too much about Arthur Peach. So 1638, two and a half years into his indenture contract, Peach decides the payoff is no longer worth it and he's going to run. And under the terms of his contract, he's not allowed to leave Plymouth Colony, right? He is the legal property of his contract holder, in this case, one Edward Winslow, for as long as his indenture is in place. So Peach is barred from leaving Plymouth Colony, where the Winslow estate is located. But Peach has had it, decided he's had enough and he wants freedom now. He doesn't want to wait. Now... One very key difference between indentured servants and actual slavery is that while they were not allowed to leave the colony, the indentures were allowed to gather up public houses when not working. And the public house in Plymouth Colony belonged to Stephen Hopkins. It wasn't first his home. He eventually turned it into Hopkins Tavern. Now, by and large, the Puritan colonists of the Plymouth Colony did not approve of public houses. All right, they Puritans, right? However, Hopkins was a Mayflower original. He was one of the survivors who came over on that mayflower in 1620 and the intervening 18 years earned hopkins some level of standing with the other colonists and at hopkins public house peach met up with three other indentured servants who were also ready to leave one thomas jackson richard Stinnings, and daniel cross and so the four of them decided they were going to flee together now hand in hand with the desire to run towards freedom is the fact that the colonies are unsettled and i don't mean like as in there's still a lot of rough nature out there i mean they very recently fought a war with the native tribes nearby so the pequot wars are still very fresh in memory they're so fresh that the treaties have not even been signed yet i mean there's been a a cessation of hostilities but things are still really rough there and Peach had almost certainly fought in the Pequot Wars, right? There was no prohibition against handing your indentured servant weapons and saying, go forth and fight those Indians, and so he did. You know what? I haven't tried this yet. Let's give this a shot. Kind of glad the ginger beer is the overwhelming flavor. It's not bad. It definitely has this weird minty under flavor. It's not awful. I'm just, I'm not sure what, it's like mint ginger. Yes, mint ginger. I'm not sure how I feel about that. In addition to escaping their respective owners, the men also had to dodge potentially hostile native tribes, which in this region of Massachusetts were the the Narragansett, the uh, Nipmuc, and the Wampanoag. However, only the Narragansett and the Wampanoag were big enough to be problematic, and those two tribes were pretty much constantly at war. The Nipmuc were like sworn legionmen to the Narragansett. They they, They weren't property of, but they were a smaller tribe who held allegiance to the Narragansett. That's probably the best way I can describe it. The Nipmuc are there, but they're not the overriding concern to the colonists. The four men make their plans and they start their escape. And while wandering through the woods, trying to navigate their way north, they are passed by a Nipmuc man who history remembers as Yankees. Very sorry if I'm mispronouncing these words. Clearly, I do not speak Algonquin. That's not his name. No one actually knows what his name is. I mean, undoubtedly, his tribe at the time knew what his name was and who he was. But how he came to be called Peno and Yankees is kind of part of the story. So, the four escapees were surprised when Peno and Yankees passed them in the woods. And that night, as they lay there starving, it occurs to them that, um, or at least to ringleader Peach, that if they kill the Indian guy, they could steal his supplies. And that might see them through their journey to freedom. So... Peach, <laughs> being the peach of a man he is, decides that murder is the answer to all of their problems. And when they catch up with Yankees the next day, Peach attacks the Nipmuc man, stabbing him several times with the blade that Peach had, just like a short sword of some sort, probably the one he carried during the Pequot Wars. Penow Yankees manages to get away. He's severely wounded, but he escapes and he hides in the woods, while Peach and his gang kind of plunder what they can of his supplies and they keep moving on. Somewhere in all of this, I believe it was after the attack on Penelope Yankees, Peach and his gang are attacked, or sorry, not attacked, passed by colonist John Throckmorton, who kind of sensed they were up to no good. You you get that sense in the back of your head, hey, these people are bad. And he spurs his horse on. He doesn't even slow down. And that's that's important, all right? This this is essentially the sole witness to, to what could have happened, right? Sometime the next day, some tribesmen from the Narragansett found Pano Yankee still alive, but seriously injured. And that's important, right? If it had been the Wampanoag, they might've just killed him. But the Narragansett, even though it was a Nipmuc man, they recognize, hey, this is one of our allies, basically, and he's seriously injured. And given the general state of 17th century hygiene, he's starting to fester. Um, the injuries are festering, he's fevered, and all he can say is Panoa, which basically means foreigner, strangers did this. It wasn't a native man. This, this, was, this was the English, basically. And that's how he came to be called Yankees because he was just saying strangers did this. This was his story. And it was so important for him to say that, to get that out there, that he didn't say his own name. So while his tribe undoubtedly knew who he was, and by, by his absence of nothing else, and the Narragansett recognized that he was Nipmuc, we still don't know his name and and i mean there could be any number of reasons for that there there can be taboos against saying the name of the deceased lest you tie them to this plane once they've passed that's one thing i just realized i'm holding my drink up like that so not sure if that's necessarily the case here toby pearl doesn't go into that she does a fantastic job reconstructing aspects of nipmuc culture but whether or not this taboo is part of that is not addressed it's just something i know because i'm a nerd and i read so it's not awful not sure if it's my favorite thing ever but it's not awful even with all the wilderness still in the bay news travels fast especially with Narragansett messengers who know the back ways and all the woods and by the time Peach and his band of runaway slaves runaways make their way to William Blackstone's Manor news of Pennell and Yonke surviving the attack had beat them there and now it became a race to flee the colony before justice could catch up to them so the Peach Gang headed towards Roger Williams' estate, who was known towards to be sympathetic towards those who were trying to escape indentured servitude. Uh, Williams' estate had the adva- added advantage of being in a different colony, the newly formed Isle of Rhode's, modern-day Rhode Island. The, the Peach Gang Staggered into the Williams estate and kindly warned Roger Williams and his wife and children of marauding Indians who had apparently mortally wounded another native in the forest. Williams offered the four men food and drink and rest before gathering up doctors from the area to try and help the wounded Pennywenyakis. Peach, recognizing that he's bought himself a very short delay, barely stopped to eat and then immediately continued their journey while Williams, with doctors Thomas James and John Green, hurried out to help penelongkiis arriving just in time for Williams who spoke fluent algonquian he he was one of the people who was like hey we're in their land we should maybe learn their ways and so he did a lot of anthropological studies with with the native tribes he he got there just in time to hear penelongkiis dying tale and williams on hearing this story immediately realized that the four men he had just sheltered were the guilty parties so Williams, while Doctors Green and James try very hard to save Peno Yankees, which to no avail, right? By this time he's too far gone. Williams sends his Indian slave, a boy named Will, to follow the men and alert authorities should the men land in, in or near a settlement. And then something highly problematic occurs. The body disappears. Now, this the author did go into great detail on Nipmuc customs and thinks that most likely the Narragansett tribesmen recognizing the young man as Nipmuc may have cremated the body in accordance with Nipmuc customs. Um, it wasn't one of their well-known customs, but it was something they were known to do. And so that's one possible explanation for where the body went. Still leaves the Englishman with a bit of a problem because nobody, no crime has been Fairly consistent in English jurisprudence for centuries. Because if you don't have a body, they could have literally just walked away and gone somewhere else. We still have that problem of no body, no crime. So, regardless of the missing body, the Peach Gang is captured. Because even with no body, they know these guys are runaway indentures and likely violent. Because there was a body, right? It had been seen by five people at least, right? Six, right? 10. You got the Ford Hackers, you got Williams, the two doctors, the two Narragansett tribe men, and Will. Right? So we've got at least ten people are aware that yes, there was a body at some point. So the Peach Gang are captured and held at Aquidnet Island, which fell just outside the jurisdiction of both Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth Colony. But they still worked in cooperation and held the gang until trial jurisdiction could be determined. However, the holding facility at Aquidnet Island was lacking, and Daniel Cross was able to escape, fleeing all the way to New Hampshire, where the colony there, in long-standing tradition of live free or die, apparently they come quite honestly by this motto, told Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay Colony to Pound Sand. They're not going to be extraditing Cross, they don't bow to Massachusetts Bay Authority, and from here, Cross is lost to history. He escaped the three other men left the colony in a bit of a pickle. Uh, The Pequot Wars barely ended. I mean, the treaties, again, have not even been signed. They've stopped actively killing each other, but things could flare up again like that, right? It's, It's just very fraught with tension. If the murders are not brought to justice, the war could flare up again. However, in the eyes of some colonists, it was only an Indian, right? Some, not all. I mean, hell, in the eyes of some of the tribes, it was only a Nipmuc. So, who knows, right? And Peach had that Irish thing going. I mean, he was only an Irishman, but he was still white. So there's that. So this is all kind of things that are going through the minds of the governors when they're trying to figure out who has jurisdiction over this. So right away, Governor John Winthrop of Massachusetts Bay Colony nopes right out of this. He wants no part of this. He knows this is a hotbed issue, and he's ceding the right to trial to the governor of Plymouth Colony, Thomas Prince, who is known to the colonists as Terror to the Wicked. Hence the name of the book, I imagine. And Winthrop doesn't want to be responsible if the trial does not find the men guilty. If that good old English racism rears its ugly head and the men are found not guilty and the war flares back up. So he sends it to Prince, who arranges for the Narragansett tried men to transport the prisoners back to Plymouth for trial. That's a bold move, right? I mean, I can only imagine that everyone wondered, are the men actually going to make it to trial? Um, I mean, I wonder if the Narragansett doing the transport thought the same thing. I mean, these were escaped slaves, essentially, and they might be a charge of property damage, but would the English accept property as recompense and just let it all go? Conversely, what if the English did not accept property damage and the war flared back into open combat? I mean, the tribes had already lost a lot of people to this fight. And, but then again, it's not like the Narragansett had any reason to trust English justice. The tribes had already been fairly screwed over by quite a lot of English justice, but they rolled the dice. They transported the men safely to Plymouth Colony to await trial and Prince convened his jury. And that's no mean feat in the 17th century colonial life. Uh, Jurists had to be free men. Couldn't be indentured. No women were allowed. Prince preferred educated men. Now most of the men had some degree of education. The Puritans were pretty strict about that because they believed that you had to know the Word of God to understand the Word of God. And you couldn't know it if you couldn't read it. And So they were, by and large, a fairly literate colony but he was looking for people with a bit more above that, a little more education than that, to hopefully mitigate the fact that there was no body. (laughs) I mean, he's trying real hard here to keep this above board. He really was. Perot goes into great detail explaining how trials and courts were run in the 17th century. And while one can certainly see the roots of American jurisprudence in the way the court was run, it's vastly different from how things are run today. Uh, today, juries are selected randomly off of voter rolls, basically, and anybody can serve. As, as long as you vote, you are eligible to serve in the jury. Back then, those jurors, those were hand-picked men. There was no random jury selection. Half of the jury was essentially held on blackmail or ransom, and not to give a verdict one way or the other. Prince genuinely, I don't think, cared about that. I think he did care about justice. But he wanted those men on the jury because they were educated, and specifically these men followed Reverend John Lothrop, who wanted to strike out from Plymouth, Massachusetts Bay Colony to form his own colony. But he couldn't do it without the permission of the governor, because of that good old English law. And basically, Prince said, give me the men for my jury, and I'll let y'all leave. So like six of them were held there under this promise of freedom if they would just sit on this jury. Nobody wanted any part of this one. Uh, eventually, eleven men were found, with the twelfth being pulled from the crowd the day of the trial, which was not uncommon. If they couldn't find eleven suitable, they would just pick some guy at random from the fr- who met the other criteria. Right? He had to be a free man. Didn't you know the education was less important, but he did have to be a free man. Couldn't be a woman. Couldn't be indentured. Typically, they did not have defense attorneys. You acted as your own counsel, and the and. The three men remaining, minus the escape cross, of course, knew that they had to stick together on this one. There was no separating the trial charges or anything like that. In for a penny and for a pound, you guys are doing this together. And they let Peach do all the talking, which consisted mainly of, it was not us, and prove it, Nobody, no crime. The requirement for a murder conviction back then w- was two witnesses to the crime. So the other two might have been able to turn and say, yes, he did it. We had no part of it. They didn't. So that's interesting because they could have, and it might have saved their own lives, but they didn't. So there was something about Peach that had him being the leader. These men followed and trusted. So wrongly, but they trusted him. The only proof they had of anything since they had no body was John Throckmorton, who had been in the area at the time that and Yankees was attacked and could testify to having seen the four men in that area around the time of the attack. Not much to go on, certainly not enough for murder conviction. And then, Governor Prince allowed something never before seen in the colonies. He allowed native testimony, and he allowed it to stand as being on par with English testimony. They were given equal weight. So first, the two Narragansett tribesmen who found Peno and Yankees were allowed to testify as to what they found and saw. And they swore on their own lives that Peno and Yonkes was deceased. And that if he ever surfed surfaced as a living person in the colonies again, the two tribesmen's lives would be forfeit. And their testimony that there had been a body was accepted. And that the body was in fact dead was accepted. So there's the first hurdle gone. They didn't witness the crime, but they were able to swear that yes, there had been a body and that testimony was accepted at face value. Big. The next thing was Pano Yankee's dying declaration as relayed by Roger Williams. Now, almost for as long as trials and crime have existed, dying declarations have been existed as testimony, as accepted as testimony. Because the thought is you're dying. Why would you lie, right? This is your one chance to get that truth out there, to let the world know what happened to you. So why would you lie about that? And so even though... Obviously, Beno and Yankees was not there and able to, def- to testify for his own self. The word of Roger Williams, as a landowner with some pretty impeccable character, was accepted. And with that testimony, the nail was in the coffin. The jury found all three men guilty and convicted Cross in absentia. Basically, if Cross ever returned to the Plymouth Colony, they would hang him on sight. And with that, the treaty for the Pequot War was secured, because now the native tribes have some faith that they might find justice in the English courts. And the rest of the indentured learned that running was not a viable option, always an important lesson. And since they did not believe in long appeals or really any appeals process, the three men were summarily hung. And I know there's going to be people out there, what about, well, they didn't have forensics, they didn't have forensics back then, right? <laughs> this, and that didn't come about for a couple hundred years yet. Um, but they did have the this very Christian belief. And whether you're Catholic, Puritan, Quaker, Protestant, whatever. There's this very strong Christian belief that it's better to die with a clean conscience. And all three men did confess prior to climbing that ladder. They didn't have gallows. They had to climb a ladder and swing from a tree. It's pretty grim. Uh, there's nothing coerced about it. It's not like confessing would have commuted their sentence to life or anything like that. They had nothing to gain by confessing except maybe their immortal souls. This was really interesting reading. Uh, this was a piece of history that, I mean, I'd never heard of before. I can't imagine too many people have, right? It, it's written partly like a history book, partly like a tracing of of. Jurisprudence throughout America. So that was really fascinating. It is partly like an anthropological review of both the native tribes and colonial life in the 17th century. And I think it's important. It's an important piece of historical knowledge, like footnote. It practically is a footnote. I mean, this was the first trial by jury in America. And that's huge, right? The concept of trial by jury existed in England, but back then, over on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, it was almost a formality at this point, because everybody knew what the king wanted to have happen, all right? Here, the colonists are kind of on their own, so they've got to go by what they know of English law, which is trial by jury, and so they convene their jury, and they follow those steps, and they do everything they can to make this as fair as possible, and, and to give both sides equal weight, and that's huge and it's important because it shows that contrary to popular belief not all colonists were screaming bigots some of them did embrace that humanist learning of the enlightenment and that humanist learning of the enlightenment pushed forward and helped make american courts it it helped us to create our foundation upon which everything is built i quite like this book i mean it helps remind me the of how much bullshit comes out of hollywood i mean like how I know Puritans were not party animals, for example, but Hollywood h- would have you believe they were completely joyless, and here I found out they have public houses and premarital sex. Remember that Dorothy Temple chick? Yeah, they were not married when she had sex with Arthur Peach. Her child was definitely born out of wedlock. She was beaten for this after the child was born, but still. It's something like 30% of women were pregnant at the time they were married in Puritan America, so... So much for Hollywood history. I mean, this is why I read. To learn what Hollywood doesn't want you to know. And that's it for this week. Let me know what you think in the comments. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye.